Hey, it's Citizen Cosmos, we're Sergeant Anna and we discover Cosmos by chatting with awesome people from various teams within the Cosmos ecosystem and the community. Join us if you're curious how dreams and ambitions become code. Hi everyone, and we have Ethan with us today and I don't know if I should introduce him. I mean, usually like I take my time to introduce the guest, but you know what? I'm just going to let you introduce yourself because... Well, why, why don't you do it? I'd, I'd be happy to hear your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Now, now, now the pressure's on, right? Yeah. Okay, the pressure. <laughs> so, second time, let's, now we're going to keep this. I hope, Anna, don't, don't delete this. We'll keep the two recordings together. So we have Ethan Backman with us today, the co-founder of Cosmos, the CEO of Informal Systems. And I know that, Ethan, you run a validator as well, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty low key information. So <laughs> good for you that you caught that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you see, this is why I wanted you to introduce yourself and to see. Anyway, anyways. Uh, Honestly, if I was side. introducing myself, I might not have mentioned the validator. It usually kind of comes up a little later in conversation. But <laughs> for those of you interested, it's obviously it's the best named validator uh, on the network. So if you just look at the list and try to pick the one with the best name. Um, that one's ours. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Cephalopod equipment. <laughs> it is a good name, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. How did you come up with it? Oh, so a lot of the credit actually goes to Jordan Bibla, uh, the, the guy who runs Looney. You know, we've been, we were like talking for years about, you know, starting something together beyond Tenement and thinking about decentralized systems and so on. And talked a lot about squids and octopuses as just like awesome animals that have like these really cool decentralized nervous systems. I think he read a book about them once and got like really into them. And so we were talking about them and how cool their nervous systems are and how like they're a great model for what we're trying to build. And we also, we were, we were super interested in, in cooperatives as a model for building companies. Uh, and one of the primary examples of co-ops, at least in Toronto, is the Mountain Equipment Co-op which is like a sporting goods, you know, outside goods, so like camping and whatever. And so we were sort of joking around and the, the idea of like the cephalopod equipment co-op sort of came together from there. Of course, we ended up, you know, initially we tried to create a co-op for it. And so we like filled out the paperwork. And in Ontario, co-ops are regulated differently than corporations. So you have to like actually, for a corporation, you can do it online. And it takes like two minutes. For a co-op, you have to like get pieces of paper and sign them in hand and then mail them back in and so we did that and then a few months later we got a response from the government that said there was basically a typo in our paperwork and we had to fix the typo and then resubmit it and at that point we just gave up and, and just incorporated a normal corporation so now it's the cephalopod equipment corp and jordan's not really involved in it anymore um so it's now run by a few other folks but yeah I guess it's easier for, for octopuses to register their, whatever they register if they do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A little less bureaucracy uh, under the sea. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I sure hope so. Anyways, I had a list of questions for you, then I thought they were all boring, so I decided to like just ignore the questions. Oh, very good. And yeah. And, well, I had a list uh, of answers just... for you, and I've, I'm going to just ignore those, so. <laughs> <laughs> let, me just, let me just tear that up here. And, uh... <laughs> But I have to ask like the, the obvious question, how does one get to find Cosmos? Wow. Um, so first of all, one has to be uh, around for a long time. So this all, this all goes back, uh, I guess you want sort of the origin story. So I've been sort of in Bitcoin since 2013. 
in early 2014, you know, we, Ethereum was pretty much founded in Toronto and, you know, I was in Toronto and, and Vlad Zinfir and I were sort of very close at the time we were living together and we were sort of exploring and discovering blockchains together. And so we started going to these Ethereum meetups and, you know, we met Vitalik and Vitalik taught us what Merkle trees were and sort of learned all this stuff. Later in that year, we sort of discovered proof of stake and, and, you know, there was a, a night we were actually in London and we stayed up all night at Amir Taki's squat in London. He was throwing some party and we weren't hanging out at the party. We were just like talking crypto economics. Uh, and like that night, we stayed up all night and basically convinced ourselves that proof of stake was the future. And so from that point forward, we were like, all right, we basically have to have to build this like proof of stake infrastructure because we knew that, you know, nothing scaled and there were going to be many, many blockchains and we needed to kind of rebuild everything to support like the applications we thought were going to come. And so basically ever since we've been on a mission to build the, you know, the infrastructure and, you know, we're, we're almost there. But so, you know, in late 2014, a cryptocurrency research group started up that had a whole bunch of like the early proof of stake folks on it. And that's where I first was introduced to Jaquan, who had earlier in that year proposed the idea of Tendermint as this, you know, proof of stake cryptocurrency with the slashing mechanism and security deposits and so on. And so in early 2015, I met him in person at a, a conference in in Silicon Valley, the Crypto Economicon, which was a really great early conference where a lot of the early proof of stake people were, and everyone was talking about you know visions of the future and stuff that's actually coming to maturity, you know, five years later and so on. And so we hooked up there, and, and I actually moved to San Francisco for a couple months, uh, and Jay and I lived together in what was at that time called the Proof of Stake Palace, because at any given time, you know, for a period of a few months. There was a set of people working in there, anywhere from like four to six people or something, all of whom were like fully dedicated to making proof of stake happen. And so, you know, I was living there for a few months too. And that's where I really started working heavily on Tendermint. And that's where we implemented the EVM on Tendermint together, like the very, very early kind of Ethermint idea and talked a lot about building Tendermint based side chains to Ethereum and this, you know, having networks of side chains and having many different Tendermint based blockchains and using the Tendermint light client protocol for them to communicate with each other. So these were, you know, obviously we weren't calling it Cosmos yet and we didn't have it fully fleshed out yet, but a lot of the ideas were kind of there very early on. And then, you know, at the time I was working for Aris Industries, we were, we were building now their Monax Industries. We were building like trying to bring the EVM and Ethereum tech to enterprises and later in the year, I decided I would leave Eris and join Jay full time uh, at the Tenement Company, become a co-founder of that company, and we would try to raise, you know, venture capital and and figure out how to build like a you know a profitable business on the back of this great Tenement software. I wasn't too involved in, in the fundraising, and Jay was going around talking to all these VCs. And this is early 2016 now, and you know they're, they're they can hardly get their heads around Bitcoin. Uh, let alone proof of stake. And we're trying to sell them on this vision of the future where there's going to be like proof of stake validator sets and they're going to run all these applications and we're going to build some kind of platform. And we didn't quite know what we were pitching and they had no idea what we were pitching. And so that, that didn't go well. After a few months of that, at the time I was actually writing my thesis, my master's thesis, which started as a machine learning thesis. And at, at one point halfway through it, I was like, um, if this is going to be a machine learning thesis, then I'm not going to finish it. And my prof was flexible enough. He was like, "Look, Ethan, as long as it can, as long as it counts as computer engineering, you do whatever you want." So I was very fortunate, and so I pivoted to be on Tendermint. And so in, in April, I wrapped up my thesis, and we sort of decided, you know, this this fundraising thing, venture capital, isn't working. You know, 
uh, selling to enterprises, whatever, that was maybe a distraction. Like, let's return to the original vision of like public proof of stake cryptocurrencies and, you know, solving the problems of the cryptocurrency systems in the world. And so we sort of went back to the drawing board thinking about what it would look like to try to launch some kind of public network around the Tendermint technology. And we actually spent a lot of time trying not to create a coin. You know, I had a hit single at the time, which was called Scam Train, to the hit of April Wine's Fast Train. You know, it's a scam train. <laughs> so, that was, so that was really great. But, you know, I was like really ragging on all the shit coins and, you know, ICOs were just starting. Did it make it to number one? Yeah, in, in spirit. Uh, it certainly made it to number one of my own my own charts. You, you can find renditions on YouTube. <laughs> Ethan Buckman's Scam Train. So anyways, I was pretty against like coming up with a currency, but... Uh, we basically sort of after iterating through a bunch of designs realized that it wouldn't really be possible to build a, a proper secure proof of stake system unless we actually had a currency to secure it because, you know, we were thinking about ways to bridge from Ethereum or whatever and what would secure the peg and so on. And so we decided, okay, we'll, we'll have our own currency system and, and we started really getting into the idea of having many different blockchains. You know, a, a big part of kind of our philosophy from the beginning had been ideas around like sovereignty and heterogeneity so that like there would be many chains, uh, each community would sort of govern their own chain in their own right. Uh, and, and each chain could be, you know, very different from the others in terms of what applications run on them. And so after iter iterating on these ideas many, many times, we sort of came up with the, with the Cosmos design of there being many different blockchains, of them connecting to each other using a general purpose protocol based on the Tenement Light client. And we sort of formalized that as this IBC idea and the notion of like hubs and zones to reduce the overhead of communication. And so all of that really started to come together. And, you know, then we put that paper, we wrote that paper the original name was actually, it was not Cosmos, it was Nuclear uh, with a G. So G-N-U, kind of like New Linux. Um, and we thought that was like super clever, but it was an awful, terrible name uh, that was never going to catch on. And I'm really glad we didn't go with it. And I think, uh, you know, we were talking, we were talking with Zaki a lot at the time. Uh, he was helping sort of ideate through a number of the designs. And I think he was really against that name. And, and eventually in one conversation, we were like iterating around possible ideas. And we sort of came up with like notions of atoms and molecules. And we hit on Cosmos and that was it. Um, and so then, you know, we changed the name to Cosmos. The white paper was already out there. Cosmos, a network of blockchains. And that was the summer of 2016. And then it was off to the races. And then, you know, we were off creating a nonprofit and raising money for it. We had the, you know, the terms of the token uh, fundraiser pretty much fleshed out. Yeah. And then the rest is kind of history. So you said loads of things then. I think like Anna has loads of questions as well, but I think I'm going to ask the first one. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, just because I spoke before you, sorry. You said that you rewrote the idea a few times. How many times did you actually reshape the idea until you came up with what it is now? I don't know how to count that exactly. Definitely a few times, like they were very early ideas when we were, you know, at the Proof of Stake Palace in 2015 that were sort of hinting at Cosmos, but weren't that fleshed out about having like Ethereum sidechains talking to each other and so on. Uh, and then, you know, we were trying to sell this like Proof of Stake validator platform to VC, so you could consider that an early iteration. And then we had some notion of something that's, that was like, just like a timestamping chain which a bunch of other blockchains could sort of submit their transactions to. It's sort of a little bit like the optimistic rollups ideas we're seeing today, but also less fleshed out. And I think that got changed a few times before it became Cosmos. I don't know, five or six iterations or something. It's hard to count them, yeah. Yeah, and what was the biggest challenge that time? At that time, 
like technical challenge, political challenge, economic challenge. There were a lot of challenges. For you as a founder, you can never see the future and what you do. So what was the most challenge? technical challenge maybe or it was not technical it was like in political way or so yeah i mean so definitely like figuring out the structure uh, of the fundraiser was a big challenge and you know we initially thought we would do it in canada and because you know we didn't want to go, go to switzerland or whatever and you know when, when we started investigating it in canada and talking to canadian lawyers like really the biggest challenge was getting other people to understand what the hell we were talking about right if you had been working on this stuff as long as we had then you knew you know, you were deep in the proof of stake world, you knew the problems and you understood. And later that year, like in uh, September after the Ethereum DevCon, we won most innovative design award or something, right? So the people in the know knew, but when it came time to explain it to other people or to explain it to lawyers so that we could structure the fundraiser, or, you know, or explain it to the larger, you know, people sort of outside that deep technical understanding of things, that was a real challenge and to some extent continues to be. Yeah. Did you want, did you just manage to explain it to some VC? Yeah, I mean, we did. So we did start to get funding. We got funding very early on. And, and then the funding actually, funding actually went quite smoothly. So once we were, once we were building a token, because the thing is people knew about Tendermint for a long time. And usually once you have a blockchain design, you know, the token comes quickly thereafter and everyone's looking to buy the token. And Tendermint was this thing, it was out there, it was good software, it was working, a lot of developers were adopting it and it had no token. So there was already this kind of like inherent demand for a token and at first we were like, no, we're not going to sell a token, we're going to build a business, we're going to raise from VCs for a business and, you know, no one knew what we were talking about. And so once we started talking about putting a token on it, people that were already kind of primed for that were pretty much ready to go. And so fundraising was actually you know, legal structure and so on aside was pretty straightforward. Once you found people that were sort of already in the space, when we actually opened the fundraiser to the public on April 6th, 2017, it sold out in 30 minutes and none of us saw that coming. We figured it would sell out. We figured it would probably hit the limit in a week or a couple weeks or whatever, but it, it sold out in 30 minutes, 17 million. And like, that was, that was a shock. I remember when I, I called my grandfather after it happened, you know, cause like I've had kind of a running thing with my grandparents that because they don't understand what the hell it is. I mean, my grandma actually was the smartest one. She like bought, she bought Bitcoin when it was like 500 bucks or something. So, you know, kudos to her. She gave me a hundred bucks. She's like, buy Bitcoin for me. So she's done very well. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather's never caught on. So after that fundraiser, I called my grandpa to tell him that I just raised 17 million in 30 minutes. I was actually, there was a second there where I was worried I was going to give him a heart attack. I was worried that something was going to happen on the other side of the line, but I think still he didn't, he doesn't understand what actually we accomplished and probably never will, but. <laughs> I think I had about 12 transactions that I didn't manage to get through because I remember it, it was such a huge, huge demand to go through and, you know, people were just bribing the Ethereum miners. I call it a bribe, you know, obviously given the more you can give to the gas just to get, that was a big, that was a big thing. Tell us about the day before funding start, before you start the, to sell the token. Oh. What do Those you... were like some of the worst days of my life. <laughs> like lead, leading up to the fundraiser is without it. So first of all, I was writing production JavaScript. You know, I do not write JavaScript for a living and never have, but I found myself in the weeks and months leading up to the fundraiser writing JavaScript. And, you know, there were a few people on the team at the time, Matt Bell and Pung, Pung Zong, who's still there, um, still with, with Tendermint. 
and you know they they did a lot of the the heavy lifting on the JavaScript side. So if it wasn't for them, you know, it, it would have been much harder for me to figure out. With them and me and Jay, we were we were writing quite a bit of JavaScript to make this thing work and auditing it and the Ethereum the fundraiser contract. I think it's an early version of what Parity's funds ultimately got stuck in. There's a few hundred lines in that contract, and I probably spent an hour on each line or something. You know, like just a ridiculous amount of time reading that contract over and over again and scared shitless about what might go wrong. So that was very, very stressful leading up to it. There were nights of not sleeping and it got delayed a few times, of course, but it was crazy when it, when it all actually worked. I mean, you said you were expecting the sale, the fundraiser, sorry, to close it first, like in a couple of weeks. So you always knew you were going to succeed with it. We actually had a two week deadline on it. So the, the structure was there was a two week deadline and there was a $10 million, $10 million cap but there was a higher cap that was a secret. So we had a $17 million cap, but we kept it secret so we didn't tell anyone. But we published a tweet with a hash, so we committed to the cap. And I think it was that, like, if we hit $10 million in the first six hours, then the cap moves to the higher cap. And so we sort of accommodated in the design for getting higher demand. And we expected, you know, I expected that we would probably raise around $10 million in a week or two. And we had that, you know, that higher cap in there as like a just-in-case, maybe things will go crazy. But then, I mean, it's crazy to think, because leading up to that thing, Jay and I were like, okay, how much money do we need to build this thing? Let's not raise too much money. Uh, we worked it out and we were like, yeah, $10 million is enough. And I mean, you know, if you look back at like how much money we've spent, it's obviously it's way more than that now. I mean, surely, you know, it's, it's because the prices went up so much and who knows what we would have been able to do if we were really stuck with $10 million. But I guess we're, we're quite fortunate to have raised when we did and for the crypto prices to have gone up so much the way they have. Oh yeah, I know what you mean about, I mean, we did our first fundraiser with Golos in 2016. I remember Bitcoin just went from, I think 300 to 500 at that point. And we were like, oh my God, it's too expensive. Nobody's gonna have us like buy it. And like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one question that is, I can more or less guess what, what you're gonna say, but I'm still gonna ask it because I think it's just, it's on everyone's mind. Looking at Polkadot, they like raising money and raise money again, and at least twice, as far as I know. And don't get me wrong, I like Polkadot, but we're building our project on Cosmos, and obviously I'm doing this, and we all prefer Cosmos for one reason or the other. But the obvious question is, why didn't you guys go and raise money again? I mean, wouldn't it be obvious to just do what everyone is doing, like Filecoin, Polkadot, and etc.? Um... I guess because we launched. You mean like, why didn't we raise money before we launched? I don't know. Maybe you would have raised money after you launched. Yeah, I mean, look, Jay and I were extremely conservative in the design of this thing. And we wanted to be as fair and as decentralized as possible. And I think that, you know, those values really shine through in the way, first of all, in, in the way the fundraiser was structured, in the amount that was held back in the treasury for the foundation and for all in bits. And in the way the launch actually happened, I mean, it was an incredibly decentralized launch. We committed up front in the fundraiser terms, you know, this is it. So we sort of straightjacket ourselves that we wouldn't be able to do another fundraiser. Sure, we could have tried to sell off more of the foundation's tokens or something like that. But, you know, we didn't want to get greedy with evaluation. We didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we were trying to raise as little as possible to actually get the job done and really keep the thing fair and decentralized. And I think that's been for everyone's benefit. I guess we didn't really see a need to have, I mean, sure, it'd be nice to have hundreds of millions of dollars in the treasury, like some of these other guys have. You know, Tezos is publishing its balance sheets and it's got like 
half a billion dollars or something in there. It's probably gonna have a billion dollars soon. Like, you know, good for them. I would love, uh, on the one hand, I'd love that. On the other hand, that would kind of be terrible because that's a lot of responsibility, right? What we're managing is already enough. This is the kind of answer I was thinking you'd answer, but I just wanted to hear it from you. And going back to what you said about managing money, and this is an interesting point. There is like two or three different groups we see in blockchain. There is the projects that they have a foundation, which is, has a jurisdiction, and that foundation usually sponsors whatever the, the team, it might sponsor some projects that are building on that blockchain and so on. Then we have the blockchain projects which go the completely legal way. You know, they register 5,000 companies and they register a security, they go to Delaware and so on and so forth. And then we get the third type of projects, which is like Bitcoin, Monero, whatever. I can't think of many because there, there aren't really many who are completely decentralized. What would you say was the best way? I mean, obviously Cosmos went kind of the first way, right? We have a foundation, we have the Bits, which does their job and they, they sponsor different projects. And as, as somebody who actually got a small grant from Bits, I know that it works. So would you say that's the correct way? Or would you say the correct way is just going completely decentralized? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, ours was a mix of the first two because there's the, there's the foundation on the one hand and there was also Bits, you know, the for-profit company on the other. Most of the funding has actually come from the foundation. I guess there's a little bit of funding coming from All In Bits. I think the idea of like the fully decentralized thing is kind of a facade. Bitcoin was able to pull it off. Like it's not true that it, Bitcoin has lots of companies now, right? Like Blockstream and there's there's a whole bunch of other companies that are where they're paying people full time to work on the protocol. So, you know, the idea that there's not going to be companies employing people to work on these protocols, I think is... I think is very weird and kind of delusional. I don't know what the structure is of Monero. I think, as far as I understood, there was a company um, that develops core software. You know, maybe they weren't involved in a fundraiser. Okay, that's fine. They, you know, they 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 pay for development some other way. So, you know, I don't know what the best what the best way to do things is. I mean, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the fundraising design space. You know, and we've seen a bunch of proposals of using token bonding curves and things like this, so that there's more lockup of the fund and there's better governance on how they're dispersed and potentially people can cash out if they decide six months down the line before the project launch that they want their money back or whatever, right? So I think there's a lot of room for improvement and experimenting in the fundraiser design. To some extent, our concern, you know, because early on we were like, oh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ideas here. We could do this better than just kind of the standard thing. Why don't we explore some of that? The problem was you had to code it as an Ethereum smart contract. And at the time, and probably still, our primary motto was to write as absolutely little solidity code as possible because every line of solid, you know, it's already the case that every line of code you write is a liability. But if you're writing solidity, it, you know, the liability is magnified like a hundredfold or a thousandfold or something. So very dangerous. So we didn't want to have like a more complicated mechanism involved. I think doing things today, okay, now there's a lot more tooling. You get your contracts formally verified by, you know, four different organizations. So maybe it's a different world and we would design something a little more like these new mechanisms that provided means for reclaiming your donation or uh, having better governance over the distribution. I don't know exactly. I don't, I don't think this has been figured out fully, but certainly, you know, what we did wasn't optimal. It was trade-off between a whole bunch of things and it worked well for us at the time. But moving forward, if I were to do it again and for some other project or something, I'd probably structure it differently and would put in more thought into how it ought to be done. And obviously we're living in a different world now from a regulatory perspective and and things like this. So yeah, it's really challenging how to design a proper fundraising. Would you say the regulatory 
world as you described it will it launch more and more close into decentralized project or the opposite will decentralization kind of i don't know what's the right word to say uphold and win and there will be no more regulatorics for the rest of eternity i mean what's your opinion on it's a real challenge in some in some respects like okay on the one hand the ico boom there was a lot of fraud and there were a lot of scams and a lot of people you know lost a lot of money on the other hand, there was a lot of really legit projects and a lot of amazing technology and, you know, the whole space of cryptography has moved forward and for formal verification is moving forward and all this like fundamental computer science is being advanced because of money that was raised in those, in those fundraisers. And nowadays, you know, it's still possible to raise money. The problem is now so much of it is like forced into these either accredited investors or these like much smaller limits where you're coming from retail investors. And so... You know, if you're raising from accredited investors, well, then your systems are, you know, it's much harder to get them decentralized. It's much harder to benefit, you know, the average individual or the average developer who's probably not, uh, you know, accredited by any means. So I th there's definitely a lot of problems in that. So I don't think the current state of regulation is very helpful and is probably hurtful to the space and to what we're all trying to do here. Obviously, we need to find the right balance. And I'm hopeful that there will be more progress towards uh, innovation in securities law that enables more involvement from people who, with demonstrated experience or expertise or something like that. And we're already start, starting to see some proposals like that. I mean, you know, the there's the, you know, uh, crowdfunding for equity regulations, whatever they are in the US, and there's, there's equivalent stuff in Canada now, and those are only a few years old. So this stuff is starting to change, but it's very slow. And obviously, it'll need to get a lot better before this all really works properly. But in the meantime, you know, we have all these basically like VC coins where most of the funding came from, you know, a big venture capital firm. And like, what's that going to do for decentralization? It's, it's probably not very good. So that's kind of unfortunate, but yeah. What about something crazy? Like, let's say, I mean, Cosmos has a community pool, right? And I'm really glad to see the last few days we've seen from Ethan, Cosmosm. And I was really happy to see that because I think it needs to be used for such things, not just for security, because if you carry on inflating the security thing, it's not going to run out. But what about using the community pool to make collective decisions about investments into projects, which will later on give something back, let's say via IBC or whatever, with that... Oh, I love it. Absolutely. I mean, in theory, that there's there's good ideas there, right? Like if, if we're going to build some kind of sustainable economic ecosystem, we're going to have to figure that kind of stuff out, right? I think we're all a little bit deluded with the extent to which like governance functions well in a super decentralized context. And you sort of still need to delegate to people to make decisions and to source things and just like a fully decentralized governance process over investments, sort of like the original, the DAO on Ethereum, was probably a bad idea. We don't know to what extent crowdsourcing knowledge works, right? It seems to work in some contexts, not others. We don't have that much data around it. And it's not really clear if making investments that are likely to have a return is a domain where that works well. But what might work well is to nominate, is to use the process to nominate someone to be in charge or some small group of people to be in charge and to make investments on behalf and something like that I think would be very cool. And, you know, so we're starting, like in the Cosmosm, what's awesome about the Cosmosm proposal is that, it, you know, it's really the first one for the community pool to actually fund some development. And it's structured in a way that the payout is made to a multi-sig by, you know, a two out of three community uh, members. And, and it's basically on them to sign off on the deliverables, right? 
And I think, you know, starting to experiment with more structures like that. The, actually, the one thing, Cephalopod hasn't voted on it yet because I sort of wanted to talk about this and I hadn't had a chance. But, you know, the one thing that I was sort of hoping to see in the proposal was that we would actually use Cosmwasm to introduce more flexibility into governance, right? Because right now the governance, you know, process on, on the hub is quite slow and lengthy and it would be nice to see more flexibility there and to be able to script some of the payout conditions, to have scripting involved in, you know, who's involved in the multi-sig or how much gets transferred when and so on. So I definitely think there's enormous opportunity to innovate and experiment with the governance system to facilitate more sustainable, like economic activity uh, and investments and so on. So yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Going back to, sorry, kind of went off customers there in the story and well, one question I do have for you, which I'm really curious. When Cosmos started to, I don't know how to put it correctly, to trade, right? Let's say to trade in 2018. And obviously you guys raised 17 million and the cap of Cosmos, and we all expected that because we knew it was going to be great, was almost what, like 700 million at the beginning straight away. And what did you feel at that point? I mean, did you just like say, oh my God, we just created a unicorn? Nervous. Yeah. You know, you remember, remember that tweet from Elon Musk a couple of weeks ago where he was like, you know, the price of Tesla stock is too high or something. Yeah. 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 This is perennially my feeling about all of crypto. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, when that thing went live, I mean, well, first of all, it, it wasn't trading for a while. So that was cool. And that was amazing. It was much more exciting when it wasn't trading because there's less to be worried about. But uh, but yeah, when it started trading, it was, I guess I wasn't surprised that it was that high given everything else going on. It's definitely nerve wracking to see that. I mean, the truth is with all with pretty much all the cryptocurrencies, like there isn't really any real world value being created yet, right? Like it's all very speculative. And that's true from Ethereum on down pretty much. You know, maybe there's something to be said about Bitcoin, I don't know, but for pretty much everything else, it's very speculative. So it's really hard to understand or to make sense of what the value is or what it should be. And sort of my whole shtick the whole, you know, for years has been that I want us to move towards integrating this technology with the real world and have it not just be about finance and you know arbitrage and speculation, but actually find ways to connect it with real people and real communities and, and real productive capacity and things to make society sustainable, right? It's for us about sustainability and sustainability concerns is what led Jay to invent Tenorment in the first place. And sustainability concerns is sort of what led me and us to sort of put forth the values we did and to design Cosmos the way it is to be to support like sovereignty and, and sort of independent, many, many, many independent zones designed for what you need, because that's what a sustainable society is built out of. It's not a top down thing. It's a bottom up thing, right? I mean, that's what's required to actually enable communities to build more sustainable and actual useful blockchain applications. We're just starting to see it happen now. We're starting to see some zones that are less focused on some kind of finance use case and more focused on a real world use case. And once that starts really kicking in, then it's a little easier to understand how and why the tokens have value and, you know, what gives the atom value as like from a security perspective for securing the communication between all those other things. But seeing something be worth a billion dollars with no real world use case. I mean, I guess it's par for the course, right? Like how much was we worth with a Juicero or whatever, right? Like all these stupidly inflated valuations of Silicon Valley companies. It's all part of the same bubble, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the application level though, isn't it? And I mean, at the end of the day, money is kind of like application kind of, right? I sort of agree that the killer app is money. But first of all, no one's using it really as money. They're using it for finance. And there's a big difference between finance and money, right? 
finance is, is just all this like speculation and arbitrage, right? And everyone's just trying to siphon a buck off of everyone else. And pretty much all of DeFi is just that. And so the MakerDAO mechanism and all this stuff, like it's freaking awesome and appeals to like my, my nerd mind, but from my like social science mind or whatever, it's like, this is all just a, a complete distraction and a catastrophe. And one of like the primary drivers for me in why Cosmos was designed the way it is and why I was so motivated and so on to build it is to build infrastructure for local currencies, right? And to enable smaller communities and smaller like cities and whatever to actually roll out their own currencies for that local area. These aren't global currencies that everyone's going to speculate on and that are accessible to anyone anywhere. They're local currencies that are meant for like local circulation and to support local supply chains and so on. And we're not quite there yet. And I'm not currently working on a local currency project, though I hope to be at some point. But certainly, uh, that was a huge, huge motivation for me to work on and develop Cosmos and, and get it to where it is and continues to be. And I hope to see others start to adopt it for that kind of use case. I'm really glad that you say that because I'm not one of the people who thinks that money brings value. It's kind of the opposite. You have to have value first and then out of that value, you can create whatever is monetary valuable for somebody else. It's a bit crazy work to see that some people think that DeFi will save the world. Well, no, DeFi came because we had a big slide, like slide down the market. And when the market was bleeding, then it was obvious for DeFi to come. And this is where DeFi came in and people were like, oh my God, DeFi, no, DeFi did not save it. I love that you call it DeFi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah, you know, I mean, it's all. I mean, yeah, the, th the thing is with DeFi, with DeFi, is that it's, it's just the same shit, right? It's the same financial crap. It's just a little, you know, it's more transparent. So it's like everyone is equally screwed. It's just more obvious that you're screwed, which is good. It's good to know you're going to get fucked. Right. In the financial system, you don't know how you're going to get fucked. It's like someone's going to fuck me, but I don't know how. In DeFi, you can see exactly where you're going to get fucked. And it's great. Like the risk is right there. But people are like, oh, it's going to, you know, it's it's bullshit. And all of these, everyone is trying to build like a global currency and a new die. Like, sure, die is cool, but it doesn't change anything materially about the structure of the financial system. It is not part of the solution. Right. It's a, it's a, a minor, minor step towards something a little bit different. But we need something really bottom up and the mechanism might be might be relevant like the stablecoin mechanism that they use is probably going to be very relevant for actually enabling local currencies to still be volatile and accumulate value and yet have a stablecoin associated with them but why peg to the US dollar when the US dollar is like the source of so many problems I'm glad that you say that because not many people understand not I don't mean like to you know that I didn't expect you understand it but not many people understand what you say so I'm, I'm glad that, that, that you mentioned it but hey, it's good to know but you need to bring the Vaseline with you right I mean when somebody tells you hey come for a cup of coffee by the way don't forget the Vaseline because I'm gonna fuck you over <laughs> at least we know that yeah I have a question about motivation yeah, and about tough times, uh, what keep you going that time? Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of tough times, but I will, will say that the community never faltered. And showing up, like, you know, in 2016 and 2017 and whatever, I spent an enormous amount of time just, like, manning the Slack forum or whatever, right? and answering people's questions and helping people start to use Tendermint and seeing people adopt the software that we had built and seeing them enjoy it and seeing it actually solve their problems in ways that other people's software didn't is infinitely motivating. 
there's nothing else comes close to that kind of feeling. And so the fact that people kept coming and new people kept coming and you'd see, you know, you had guys like, like Martin Dyring who's still around today with e-money, you know, he was there very early on and it would be like, he would ask some questions about how something would work. I'd explain it to him. And then, you know, a few months later, someone else would show up and ask the same questions. And now Martin was explaining it to them. And so to see that kind of onboarding process scale and the community grow like that was just like, it just exhilarating. And then to see people like in, in the telegram groups and whatever, talking about all the new business, right? Cause like in 2015 and 2016, we're talking about proof of stake validators as a new business model and no one knows what the hell we're talking about. And then years later to see those, to see that vision actually start to turn into reality and to see people who are starting those businesses, talking about those businesses and what they're doing and the challenges they're having or whatever is just like, fills me with such immense like joy to see that is so motivating and even sometimes like I would say a lot of the challenges were more recent right they weren't they weren't really in the early days they were sort of in the last couple of years and really scaling the team because in the early days like everything was really exciting and you had a very small team and it was all close-knit you didn't really have like a lot of the growth pains that you get once you start to get to like 20 25 30 people and communication break breaks down and, and it's a lot more challenging to sort of hold the team together and scale it so that's when things got really really tough but early on it was like super motivating to know that we were working on something important and people were using it and the technology was working and it was exciting. And I also, I guess I just have this like motivation superpower where somehow I'm like always keep going because if, you know, if it's interesting or fun or, or whatever it is, maybe that'll die out at some point. But I think I was blessed with some capacity per, for perseverance. They say success is like, you know, 10% intelligence and 90% perseverance. And I think that's one of the truest things I've ever heard. So. And how many percent is about fun? <laughs> I think uh, I think that's baked into to perseverance. So if you have fun, you'll persevere or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. If I um, gonna ask you to describe yourself like a person, yeah, what you do? You're a troubleshooter or maybe a researcher. Who you are by your nature? I'm going to help you. You have a description on your Twitter says internet biophysicist. That's my default, right? So I go back to it. So it's, it's like internet biophysicist, sustainability existentialist, and plain text evangelist. I think that's my Twitter profile right now. And I think those three things capture a lot of my current concerns. You know, so internet biophysicist, I, I care a lot about, you know, I see the internet as like a, a, a major phase in biological systems. And sort of, I'm, and I'm very, you know, in connection to the next one, the sustainability, I'm very concerned with sustainability and with the sustainability of the species and of like just cool emergent phenomenon. And so sort of connecting those two and, you know, approaching the internet with the mindset of a biologist and trying to build more sustainable organic systems on the internet that grow kind of organically and sustainably rather than you know, Facebook grew or all these other like virus, you know, those are like viruses, right? They're, they're not quite alive. They're infectious and viral. And, and that's sort of different than, you know, the way an organism grows or a forest grows. So I care a lot about, about that stuff. I don't know if that's sort of, if that's what you're trying to get at though, because those are just like, you know, my occupational description. If you want to know more about my traits, you sh it's probably better to ask like people I work with, ask my coworkers or ask my girlfriend or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from the girlfriend part, usually it's actually what you describe is usually describes your traits, not the other way around. Right. So, I mean, it's what shapes you. I mean, these things you said are important to you. And it's great because a lot of people compare blockchain to forest. I think I've, I've, I've heard so many comparisons about mycelium, 
forest, uh, ants, whatever, you know. What is your favorite biologic system, by the way? I think I can guess, but still. You think you can guess? Oh yeah, I think I can guess, yeah. What is your guess? Well, I mean, what constant, what is the limit on a biological system? I, I have different favorites at different layers, right? Depends what scale. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to hear her guess, but wait, now I'm really curious. What's the answer, Anna? Go on. Uh, so I think mushrooms, they're like perfect. Yeah, it's mycelium, yeah, so. Yeah, at the like 100 kilometer, at like the kilometer scale, it's definitely mushrooms. Yeah, mycelia. I'm a huge fan of nervous systems. Like early on, I was obsessed with understanding nervous systems. Subcellular, I, I was obsessed with microtubules for a very long time. So tubulin is definitely my favorite protein. That used to be my favorite question for like biologists back when I was like a biophysicist. And you know, I was like, oh, what's your favorite protein? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've read some um, something on one of your, not on the GitHub pages, but on your old blog, there was something about biological systems. Yeah, I've written. I've read it like crossover. Why did you stop writing, by the way? I'm still writing. Hey, come on. I just wrote like a... <laughs> Sorry. I just wrote like a long... It was in April, right? The, the last post? My last post to the Genghis Khan one? Yeah. I'm still writing. I wish I wrote more. I wish... Right now I'm writing some academic papers. So I'm working on a few academic uh, journal articles. So that's fun. And those are all like blockchain related or a little bit about some of the formal verification work we're doing at Informal. I wish I wrote more blog posts and I'm trying to find better time for it. The problem is, so I'm like, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, I guess, going back to traits. And I am very, very anal about writing. And I, I rewrite the opening paragraph of everything like 30 times. I'll spend, it'll take me like three hours to get the first two paragraphs down. And then the rest of it, you know, flows pretty quickly or whatever. So... I have to get over that. And once I get over that, maybe I'll be able to write more. Do you make notes when you when something comes up to your mind? Like when you're on a plane or something? Oh my God, I know what to write. And it's... A little bit, yeah. I could be better at note-taking for sure, yeah. My note-taking strategies are not where they need to be. Talking about algorithms and machines and, and obviously coming to uh, informal systems, tell me a little bit about it. I mean, I looked at the website and I've heard a little bit about it. I kind of have a lot of questions, but I wanted to hear it from you. Maybe you can like clarify what you guys do and what it is. So the statement of Informal's mission is that uh, we want to bring verifiability to distributed systems and organizations. And really what that's driven by is the observation that both the systems we build and the organizations we build suffer from an incredible amount of manual error-prone processes. And it's very difficult to verify compliance with any kind of properties, right? Like what are the guarantees that your system provides or that your corporation provides and how do you actually verify that? And so, you know, we think about uh, both of these things, you know, distributed systems and distributed organizations and so on as in many respects as, as state machines, right? Like they have some internal, internal state. There are something like transactions that update that state, their inputs and outputs. And we sort of want to understand that better and be able to kind of specify things, query the system, understand what state it's in, understand how it transitions and what properties it preserves. And that applies both for the distributed systems we build, like consensus algorithms, and also the companies we build. And so, you know, for instance, over the last five years of building Tendermint, Tendermint is this incredible state-of-the-art piece of consensus software. There's really nothing else like it on the planet today in terms of level of maturity and functionality and so on. Parts of it are very complex and very difficult to change, right? Because it's gone through so much rigorous testing and reading and analysis that now if you want to change something of it, it's really hard to gain confidence that the change is correct. 
And that's that's not really an acceptable state of affairs for for systems like this. You need to be able to change them and have confidence in the changes. You know what what we really want to build, what we're really working towards on the distributed system side is process for more verification driven development so that you can get much stronger guarantees out of your development process that the software complies with your specifications, that you understand the specifications and, and sort of build tooling and processes around the development sort of life cycle um, to bring software and specs closer together. And, you know, a lot of people have articulated this as goals and it's, it's very challenging. And so we're really trying to focus in on doing that. And, and the same sort of applies to corporations, you know, so I've been running corporations now for like five years and inefficiencies and the lack of verifiability of the state of the corporation puts holes in my brain, right? Like it's so unbelievable that for, as far as I can tell, every private corporation is invalid, right? Like if you look at the rules for what a corporation must do, and then you look at the state of the corporation, I would put money that there's not a single private corporation that actually fully complies with the rules for one reason or another, because it's just too difficult. And it's not because anyone is like trying to engage in illicit activity or they're malicious. They try, they're all trying desperately to comply and to keep their company organized. And the tooling just doesn't exist. And I consider this, you know, an embarrassment to the species, a complete failure of Silicon Valley. Like the fact that people, you know, Silicon Valley has been building companies for 20 years, 30 years and, you know, 60 years, whatever it is, and has not addressed these like fundamental issues. Um, is really shameful, right? And I would be I would be ashamed to have been in the valley for 40 years and just still being, you know, building companies the same way. So anyone who's listening to this, you know, you should be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> shame, yeah. Shame when you, you know, like when the aliens come down and it's like valuating us and it's like, oh, we're destroying the forests and, you know, we have Donald Trump as the president and all this, all this like shameful stuff. Like the thing I'm most ashamed of is the, the state of our corporations and what we let them get away with and how that they're allowed to exist at all in the state they exist in blows my mind. So anyway, so everything I said about software and verifying software and understanding software and being able to change it and understand what change you made and so on, all of that applies to companies as well and to organizations. The mission of Informal is really to bring that kind of verifiability both to distributed systems and to companies and organizations so that you can actually operate your companies and operate your distributed systems with a lot more confidence and a lot more uh, efficiently and the cost of compliance will go you know goes down at least 10x if not 100x for both what is the one metric or the one thing that should be introduced first as the antidote to the poison of, of any corporation that exists today I, I don't know that there's a single thing. I mean, huge problem I have is that you have all this corporate data and it's spread out over a bunch of proprietary systems and proprietary formats. You have your accounting data in QuickBooks and you have a bunch of contracts stored in your Google Drive and you have you have your cap table on Carta and it's just like a mess of proprietary systems, many of which are effectively criminal organizations as far as I'm concerned. If you look at the kinds of behavior that you know Intuit, which builds QuickBooks, engages in with respect to like lobbying the government to keep taxes difficult to file so that they have a business model, and you know you look at what Google does, and it's disgusting. So to be in a position where you don't really have a choice but to use those products is really, really bad. And so you know I, I have tremendous empathy for everyone who's running a company, every operator, every entrepreneur is a hero as essentially to be willing to put up with this and I'm, I'm not willing to put up with it. So that's why informal is dedicating resources to like trying to address this on the organization side. And what, you know, what we're starting, what we're looking at trying to do is basically bring as much as possible of the corporate state uh, into plain text and to bring as much as possible of the software engineering practices to bear on running a corporation. So 
keeping your data in plain text in a Git repository, using version control, you know, that Git gives you, building like continuous integration pipelines to, to kind of enforce the rules about how things in your corporation can change and who can sign a contract for an employee or, you know, all this kind of stuff can be encoded as rules and enforced in the same way that we enforce rules about who can merge, you know, pull requests on a GitHub repository and what kind of linting conditions it has to satisfy and what tests have to run and so on. We want to do all the same sort of stuff for corporations so that it doesn't cost you thousands of dollars in legal fees and accounting fees to figure it all out after the fact. It sort of starts from the beginning, but there's so much and it's such a deep rabbit hole for every different domain of running a corporation that it's really challenging to know which piece to focus on first. And so we're sort of spread out a little bit uh, and trying to trying to pull things back together. And um, yeah, it's, it's really challenging. So to some extent, I understand why, you know, no one's really, really focused on and addressed this problem. And, you know, we're not going to be able to do it alone, but I'm hoping that the sort of same philosophy that led to Cosmos and the kind of open standards that we have in Cosmos, you know, the ABCI standard, the IBC standard, and so on, um, we can bring into, you know, the corporate operations so that we have like a bunch of low level open source tools for running corporations and people will be able to build, you know, proprietary and more domain specific applications on top of that that cater to particular means. But really what we're trying to cater to is the developer entrepreneur, right? In the short term, you're a developer, you know how to use Git, you know how to write code, you're comfortable at the command line, there should be tools that enable you to manage your corporation the way you manage software. And that's sort of what we're targeting in the short term. And if we can get that right, then, you know, tools for everyone else will follow. It sounds like this is your little baby because you sound a lot passionate about it. I love this. I love this. Yeah. Well, I'm just frustrated that, that I still have to deal with the shit that I deal with and, you know, that I can't like query, easily query the state of the corporation. And it's like, you call the lawyer, you know, you're like, okay, what is the state? Oh, you call the lawyer and you ask them and they're like, oh, well, you'll have to talk to the accountant. You talk to the accountant. They're like, oh, you know, you have to talk to the lawyer. It's like. <laughs> I used to work for um, Accor. Uh, it's like one of the biggest ateliers in the world, uh, PSGO. And uh, I remember it is exactly the story. You know, I mean, I, I was an F&B manager and I used to open hotels. And, um, you know, you go to one play, you go like to one person and you ask him a question and he sends you to another person who sends you then to the other person, to the other person, to the other person. And by the time you get to the last person, your day kind of finished off and you think, oh, well, I might as well not do it because I mean, my day is finished and I have to click off and just go home. So, yeah, uh, about a few months ago, it was it wasn't winter. It wasn't winter time. Prepare yourself for this because it's going to be controversial. I think it was winter time and I saw it on your Twitter. You were talking about hummus. Now, I mean, I'm a big fan of hummus. I'm Israeli. And, you know, I mean, this is something for me. This can go just like unnoticed. Are we talking like Israeli hummus? Are we talking not Israeli hummus? And this is the question. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course. But, you know, I take my hummus seriously. So when I saw that tweet, I was like, that man knows what he's talking about. I, I have a problem with hummus. And I guess, I guess the tweet you're referring to is probably when I was like, uh, the great thing about living with your grandmother is she doesn't care how many tubs of hummus you eat. So at home, you know, I live with my girlfriend and I sort of have to, you know, consuming two tubs of hummus in a day is not an acceptable state of affairs. Uh, you know, we need to spread that stuff out. So, but uh, you go shopping with your grandma and you buy six tubs of hummus, you eat them all in two days. And she's like, oh, I guess we need to buy more hummus, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. So this is, this happens to me every time I go to Israel. I'm like, uh, and I go to my friends and like, help yourself with it. But but don't go to have you on the hummus. I mean, we just have like two packs, you know, like, uh, screw that. I'm just going to go with. Yeah. 
I have a question uh, concerning the company and the initial founders. So, do you think that at some stage uh, you should uh, transfer part of your influence on the project to another followers or whatever, all another developers and so on? How you feel that it should work uh, for the centralized projects? Definitely, it's important to ex expand the bus factor, essentially, right? Like the number of people who have to be hit by a bus for the project to really fail. I think Cosmos has done a pretty good job on that front, and we're continuing to take it further, expanding the number of organizations that, not just the number of people, but the number of companies that have to, I don't know, get hit with a lawsuit or go bankrupt for the thing to fail. So that's growing too. So, uh, you know, I put in a, a lot of work pretty early on to sort of onboard others and to, you know, empower other engineers to, have, to take more ownership over things. And I think we've seen a lot of that, and a lot of amazing work being done by a number of different folks who are sort of starting to run things. So I don't want to name too many names, I guess, but, you know, like, like Chris Goes, for instance, who did an, an incredible job. You know, when we brought him on, he was, this was back in 2018, I guess. He was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I want to like, I want to build Tezos on Tendermint and I want to build like, you know, bridges from Cosmos to Tezos. And we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, this is like March 2018. We're like, yeah, well, you know, we're going to launch in a couple of months. So just help us with launch for a few months. And then you can do your Tezos stuff. And he's like, okay, great. You know, and so he starts helping out with the Cosmos SDK and all the stuff. And of course, you know, launch took a year. And by the time we launched, we still didn't have IBC. And, and Chris was just like invaluable to the whole effort. Like he built so much fundamental software for in the Cosmos SDK and in the proof of stake mechanisms. And, and then, you know, took on, took leadership on the IBC specification and is still basically the lead on IBC. And it just been, you know, it's been amazing work. And I mean, there's so many other folks who have, you know, like Anton on Tendermint. Anton's been working on Tendermint basically since, you know, we hired him at like December, 2016 or something like that. So he's been working on Tendermint pretty much longer than anyone besides me and Jay. Jay stopped working on Tendermint more or less a few years ago. And I stopped, you know, sort of, last year sometime actually contributing like daily to the core code base right and anton has just been like all the way through he's done you know amazing amount of work and amazing incredible amount of the success of the tenement project is is due to him and if you look at like every project there's you know one or a couple of people like alexander bez who built a huge amount of the sdk and took a lot of ownership there and so many other folks too so i could, I could name the whole team and there have been many times where i've wanted to just like publish articles about like everyone and all the amazing work they're doing. So I feel bad for not now mentioning everyone since I've mentioned a couple people. So, you know, I love all of you. You could just list the names, just all of them. <laughs> well, if I do that, I'm going to accidentally forget someone or something, you know, so. But I think we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing, you know, a lot of other people, obviously Zaki has stepped up a tremendous amount and, and is playing a big leadership role in the channels. And, you know, Jack is in the, the channels constantly, like answering questions and running things. And you see a lot of other folks in there and, you know, we're seeing a lot of people in the community step up and sort of take on admin roles and, you know, in the discord and the telegrams and so on. So, and with the organizational decentralization and there's so many projects and so many different leads on the project, you know, we're seeing Ethan Fry now running Cosm Wasm, like Fry built the first SDK. Like, I don't know how many people know that, but back in 2017, he was one of the earliest developers and with Cosmos and was building, you know, early versions of the SDK and throwing them away and starting again and eventually moved on. And now he's back building Cosm Wasm. And, you know, a lot of people know who Fry is. He's, he's going to be the first guy to get funding from the community pool to build something. Right. So yeah, it's amazing how many, how many sort of developers are starting to be known in the community for the work they're doing and i'm certainly interested in promoting uh more of them and seeing more of that so 
So for the moment for Cosmos, uh, we don't have chief visionary. No, I'm not sure we ever had just a single chief visionary. You know, the, the vision was always shared and people, I mean, the thing about it was it was the values of the vision themselves lent themselves to being adopted by other people and not feeling like, you know, it was someone else's, right? Because of this, like, you know, this value of sovereignty and heterogeneity, you could sort of take ownership almost immediately of the Cosmos vision for yourself. And that, and I think that was part of what, what's made it so successful and why we've seen so many other projects come along and say, yeah, you know, I'm building on Cosmos and you see, you know, like the Agoric team is, you know, in, has been uh, done tremendous work for the IBC protocol and is integrating there and they're, you know, they still, they're still blockchain agnostic in, in spirit and they, they want to integrate with all these other chains, but you know, because Cosmos was this kind of a bottom up first and, and sort of sovereignty first. It's a lot easier for people to buy into that because they're like, yeah, I don't actually have to give up much to buy into this vision. I can sort of make it my own and 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 mold it for my for myself. And uh, versus a lot of other projects have this kind of you know more monolithic structure. It's a little more top down. It's a more associated with a a single state machine and a single individual who oversees that state machine. The vision of Cosmos from the beginning was to was to not have that definitively, right? And so you know when you throw away the single state machine, you throw away the single leader. People have been confused about, you know, whatever is going on with Jay and so on. Like, oh, did Jay step down? Like, you know, who cares? It doesn't matter, right? Like, uh, there's so many other people leading the charge and, and so many projects that, but everyone is so used to there being like a single CEO for the project. And, you know, so when story or that narrative is challenged, the average person is confused. But, uh, you know, we're really, Cosmos is one of these leading experiments in actually like really, truly decentralizing the developer ecosystem and the funding ecosystem and, you know, it's fascinating to see that working to the extent it's working. I mean, it's still early days and there's still a lot of money flowing out of the foundation. So, I mean, if you have ideas on how we can do this better and how we can promote more of the individual developers and engineers and researchers working on this stuff, I would love that. It's challenging, as you said, to even ex attempt to explain to people that monolithic hierarchy does not need to be to exist especially when we're talking about not a single state machine but when we're talking about a machine that can replicate its own state or rather you can replicate it or whatever right either way and um and, and i still have even in cosmos chats like when i talk to some people i still have trouble when some people come in and they say like oh my god something happened to that guy i'm like well it doesn't matter i mean it, it's it's really you're not putting the two plus two together and it still takes time and time, I think, to, to, to get people across. Well, probably one of the last questions because you're probably annoyed with us already, but... Um... I'm not. I'm, ha I'm having a great time, so I'm, I'm happy to keep going. We're talking about a lot of fun stuff here, so... Uh... <laughs> we just spoke about not having a single visionary, but again, this is about you. So what is your vision, personal vision for... Cosmos in general within, I don't know, 5, 10, whatever years, how do you see it? Apart from being the internet of blockchains, because this is too obvious. I mean, look, like the, uh, a lot about the original vision is still intact, right? I mean, it's still, it's still about, I mean, the internet of blockchains, it's cliche to say it, but about enabling, you know, this kind of sovereignty for any community to put up their own blockchain for it to be, you know, to lower the barrier to doing that as much as possible, to start to abolish the abstraction between applications and infrastructure. Uh, you know, so much has been abstracted away. Now everyone's running on Jeff Bezos's computers. And, you know, there's a lot of implications to that. And sort of Cosmos is about reverting that. And, you know, even with like Ethereum or any of these other monolithic stacks, the infrastructure is abstracted away. You just deploy your smart contract and that's it. And Cosmos is about sort of reintegrating those things. And so 
I mean, the thing for me, if we're actually going to fix the financial system, you know, the most important thing for me is to establish a sustainable society. And all of this and, you know, the vision, I, I think, very much was about that. And if we're going to do that, we have to fix the financial system. And that doesn't mean DeFi. That doesn't mean, you know, your shit stablecoin or whatever, you know, Uniswap. I mean, Uniswap's cool and all, you know, like I said. But it means addressing the fundamental way that we represent value in our societies. We're trying to think about it like an internet biophysicist. Driven non-equilibrium systems, they need to represent their environment so that they can adapt to their environment so that they can, you know, find energy and keep themselves alive. And we're thinking about our whole socioeconomic system like this. And money plays a very fundamental role there as a representative of value and of information, right, essentially. And so the fact that everyone is using more or less the same token of exchange, the same medium of exchange in, in the form of the U.S. dollar I think is catastrophe for the representation of value uh, accurately in society. And so, so much is obscured by everyone using that common global currency. And so a huge part of the vision of the next five years to me for Cosmos is about using it for local currencies and reimagining the financial system from the bottom up uh, to really enable localism and to enable, you know, smaller communities to establish in cities, whatever it is, whatever the scale is, we really need to do it at multiple scales. And so figuring out how to do that at one scale to have like a real local economic system and then how to connect those things uh, at multiple scales, a kind of holistic way that can actually make sense of global supply chains and global trade in a bottom-up way rather than this sort of top-down way. And, you know, there are so many components to that and so many things that need to happen. And of course, you know, in my mind, a huge part of that is that we actually formally verify all of the infrastructure underneath it so that we can have a lot of confidence in, you know, the technology we're building and, and do roughly the same thing for the organizations. And that's a big part of Informal's mission, um, which is, you know, very heavily aligned with the Cosmos vision, of course. There's still the path from here to there is many, many ways to get there. And there's a lot of stops along the way, like, you know, what's going to happen with the Cosmos Hub, and are we going to add Wasab, and are we going to add other features, and what kind of zones need to launch, and what kind of, you know, protocols need to be rolled out on IBC, and shared security, and optimistic roll-ups, and, you know, all kinds of cryptography, and, you know, there's a tremendous amount of things, like exciting technological things that need to happen, and I wrote about all of it pretty much in um, in, in that blog post from, on Cosmos's uh, first birthday on March 13th or whatever, this year. Um, so a lot of, about the tech, but really the, the five, 10 year vision, I guess for me is to actually change the structure of the financial system from the bottom up by enabling real local economic systems through local currencies that are integrated with each other in a meaningful way that enables the, those societies to be sustainable themselves and to compose together sustainably so that we get a, a globally sustainable society out of it. And exactly what that looks like, I can't, you know, begin to really know, you know, I have some ideas and, you know, I ought to be writing them up a little more. But definitely a lot of the mechanisms we're seeing in crypto economics, you know, bonding curves and, and you know, stable coins and so on, are, and, and IBC, of course, are going to play a huge role in that. That's what it takes for Cosmos to be a success in my mind, right? If Cosmos is just connects a bunch of shit coins or connects a bunch of global currencies, like, you know, that, you know, great. Now Solana and Nier and Polkadot and Cosmos are talking to each other. It's like big whoop, but you know, because what are any of them actually being used for, right? And so all of those are important technologies and are doing really interesting things. And I have you know tremendous respect for all of these projects. But until we actually figure out how to integrate it into real local societies, you know, it's all for naught as far as I'm concerned. And you mentioned Bezos's computers there, so hello to Bezos, obviously. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs>
It's a good thing though, because I mean, I'm quite positive you know what Urbit is, right? Because I think you, I've seen you tweet, yeah, okay. Uh, and I would love to see some kind of integration between Urbit and, and I don't know how it's gonna look, but maybe Cosmos node on Urbit, I don't know, one day we'll see, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll do something. Maybe we'll invent something because I think we are, we are the first project to drop to, to Cosmos and to Urbit. So we're like, oh my God, we love both of them. We can't get enough of, of the two, so we have to get both of them. Cool. But it's a good thing that you mentioned it, like, like seriously, like talking about, you know, a lot of people, uh, when they talk about decentralization and about building something, at the end of the day, when you go and do that on a server that belongs to one of the biggest monopolies in the world, you've got to ask yourself the question, you're like, is some, am I doing something correct here? Or am I like, you know, where where is that line? Yeah, so totally. But would you say that for, for societies, would you say that it, it's more important to first create a decentralized monetary system for a local society or would you say like a decentralized law or decentralized uh, production or or like you say for example within formal systems i guess what would you call it distributed verification right well what's what's the first step to build that correct like in brackets obviously society that goes on and multiplies and yeah, that, that's a good question. And I don't think it's going to be the same thing everywhere, right? Because I mean, a big part of the, you know, the cosmos vision and values is that we don't know what's right for everyone. And so we need, you know, the tools we build and the protocols we build need to be able to be fit and molded to the local circumstances, right? And, and so in different places, different things are going to need to happen first. I think more or less, what's probably common in every place is that, you know, you want to be able to, as much as possible, provide the bare necessities for people to stay alive from a local supply chain, right? Like to the extent that you depend on cargo traffic across the ocean or through the sky to get things that, that are just like part of basic everyday keeping people alive, um, you, you have problems, right? And so addressing that and establishing local supply chains um, and, you know, more local circulation. And, you know, interestingly enough, the whole, this whole pandemic is sort of, making people realize that a little bit more and is forcing a lot of countries and jurisdictions to look inward and focus on the strength of their supply chains. And, you know, I think that's, we're actually somewhat fortunate for that side effect. I mean, obviously there's going to be a tremendous amount of, of suffering and destruction as a result of this thing. And, you know, I don't want to be too naive about the rosy outlook, but to some extent it feels like one of the least bad things that could have happened. Like of all the terrible catastrophes that are set to befall humanity, this one feels like, mild compared to what else could have you know could be happening uh as a way to sort of force us to reset a little bit on you know our, our trajectory but i do think that you know local trade systems and ways to basically figure out how to make goods and services flow in loops in a local system is going to be really important and that's basically the heart of any kind of local currency is 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 ways to keep keep the thing kind of moving in in circles within within the within the community and basically grow with kind of concentric loops like that rather than just kind of spiraling in every direction like the global uh, economy does. And so figuring out those, those loops, like, you know, from a, a supplier to a, a producer, to a consumer, back to a supplier somehow, is going to be really important and mapping those out. And there's so much variability in them in every domain, in every jurisdiction. It's really challenging to try to kind of paint something uh, generic about them. But we have, you know, there, there's some precedent, like, you know, there are, what are they called? Like mutual credit unions, 
where like the the Veer Bank in Switzerland, there's basically like a, a union of a bunch of businesses that come together that basically find ways to sort of trade internally uh, on mutual credit. And so they've you know created this like local complementary economic system uh, born in the 30s, like after the depression, and it's still around today and it's huge. It's processed like, you know, many, many billions of dollars, I think. Looking at that as a model and trying to replicate that sort of thing in other jurisdictions to enable people to get off their dependence on the dollar so that, you know, just by interacting with other local people, you can sort of meet your basic needs without having to to work nine to five just to get dollars to make, um, you know, to, to pay for your basic necessities, I think is, is sort of where we need to start. So I feel what you're saying, because it feels like a lot of it's, it's not it's not the people's fault, because I was the way I was going to put it, I'm going to rephrase this because the way I was going to put it sounds terrible. But it feels like the way that this system, the current system from the Renaissance, roughly from the Renaissance, has been building, has put people into the shape and the state of mind where the way they think about making money or, or doing something or doing education or working uh, as a very like straight line without the possibility of going left or right. And that's not the way it is. We have so many possibilities, like you say, we have so many things to fuck like, you know, and, and COVID has actually shown uh, and, uh, a lot of holes and a lot of loopholes at the same time and the systems in every single system and i totally agree with what you say cool yeah would you like would you want to add you want to add something maybe we didn't ask something that, that you wanted to share and check out informal systems informal dot systems on the web uh you know find us on twitter and uh follow what we're doing it's super interesting work if you're interested in formal verification or understanding how we can help you um check us out and reach out Cool. Thanks for coming on. And, and it's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I would really love to do this again, like sometime in the future, because... Thanks for having me. <laughs> and you're still at the front of the bus. So. <laughs> I think I think if I was hit by a bus, Cosmos would be fine. Uh, I don't think there's a single person that, you know, I think our bus factor is pretty good by now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, Ethan, for coming on. And Thank you, everyone. Join us again next time.